You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Peer Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Equal Vision Records and Sound Talent Media. I am Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you more great content week after week. This week, we have more of the Equal Vision family, Ben Jorgensen from Armor for Sleep. Their new record, The Rain Museum, comes out September 9th, and uh, we talked a bunch about that. We talked a bunch about life. We talked a bunch about uh, his journey, the band, uh, the hiatus. All sorts of stuff. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. And if you guys are fans of Armor for Sleep, I think you will really, really enjoy this. Uh, but I had a great time chatting with Ben, and uh, I'm glad to bring it to you guys. Um, just a, just an awesome dude and a band that really uh, blew up like right after uh, we had broken up as Anatomy of a Ghost. Um, so we had a lot in common on the scenes we were in. Um, they were on a whole nother level, though, which was uh, just skyrocketing at the time and uh, going through signing to a major label, coming back to Equal Vision, uh, getting the band back together. It's just a really cool story. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for coming back week after week. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, let's get some business out of the way and we'll jump right in. So peerpleasurepodcast.com is the website. Peerpleasurepod at gmail.com is the email if you want to get in touch with me with guest ideas or questions or comments. Uh, we have the premium service, which is peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm. That gets you the uh, videos of the episodes, the past cast, uh, which is another podcast I do with other podcasters about uh, their favorite episodes of the show where we do a deep dive into that. Uh, and you also get the ad-free feed. We also have the Facebook group, the Peer Pleasure Podcast Inner Circle, available to you as well. 
Uh, Rockabilia.com is sponsoring the show. Rockabilia.com. Pier 15 is the code for 15% off your order. You can go get some Armor for Sleep merchandise. You can go get uh, every band we've had on here probably has merchandise on there. With over 500,000 items officially licensed from the bands in the store, hit up rockabilia.com. Pier 15 is the code. And uh, yeah, get yourself some merch. It's a good thing. It supports the bands and you look sweet doing it. So uh, thanks to Rockabilia for sponsoring the show. Um, All right, guys, I'm going to quit rambling here. It's been a busy, busy couple weeks, both with work, family, uh, hot weather, podcasts. It's just just a crazy, crazy time of year. I know everyone's listening a little bit less in the summertime, uh, but I still want to bring you guys bangers. Uh, So those of you that religiously listen get something good every week. Um, So stick with us. Uh, I'm glad to bring this one to you. So without further ado, let's get into my episode with Ben Jorgensen from Armor for Sleep. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, man. I appreciate Thanks for it. having me on. Of course. Of course. Uh you guys are back in the EVR family, which is yeah. which is awesome. I've I've mm-hmm. been there for a couple years now with this show and uh <laughs> it's been interesting. We we uh uh yeah, Dan was like, "Let's let's try working the podcast like a band." I'm like, "All right, let's give it a shot." <laughs> and there we are. That's awesome. <laughs> but uh yeah, man. How how are things going? Like, what uh, you guys you guys just did a tour. Uh, a friend of mine, Kenton, uh, from Science of You, mm. uh, was out with you guys opening, yes. I believe. And this was a tour that was rescheduled from previous, right? Like, uh, I remember him mentioning it to me, and then I thought it got canceled or, or postponed. Yeah. So this was um, this was supposed to happen before COVID. And, um, uh, it was going to be that summer, the summer of 2020. 
And two weeks after the tickets went on sale is when the first COVID lockdowns hit. Hmm. So we had to, obviously like everyone else, um, we didn't know if we were going to cancel the tour, but we wound up just postponing it. And, uh, then it wound up happening a year and a half after it was supposed to. God, that's wild, dude. <laughs> that's wild. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, getting the, getting the band back together and, and everything has been crazy. I remember Dan mentioning it to me a while back. He's like, Hey, this might be happening. I was like, really awesome. Okay. And then boom, here we are. You just, yeah. I think they just announced it today. Yeah, we just, uh, we just announced it. So when we did that tour, um, so what happened is that summer that we didn't go on tour, um, it was like in the, in the heart of, uh, the first COVID summer lockdown. Um, so I just started writing a bunch. I had, I had some stuff that I wanted to finish, but never got around to. So I was like, sweet, I'm going to use, uh, COVID as like, you know, my, my quarantine project was going to be to like do the new armor for sleep album. Um, so then the summer after that, which was still, we were still in COVID is actually when I recorded. So that was last summer. And, um, yeah, we've been spending the last year kind of figuring out how to uh, release it. And so today, actually, like a few hours ago was the first time we just announced to anyone that, uh, you know, we have a new album coming out in September. We the first video um, came out on YouTube today. So, yeah, it's been it's been a crazy day, dude. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Man. I've, I've heard the record. Steph sent me the record. It was it's oh, it's rad. Like. There's, Thanks, it's man. such an interesting, uh, uh, there's some really interesting stuff on there. Like and I'm not a big music theory guy. Like I'm, uh, you know, from playing in bands, of course I understand music, but I don't, I don't know necessarily know how to articulate what I'm hearing, <laughs> but there was some stuff on there where there's like some really interesting, uh, I wouldn't say key changes, but like there's some interesting spots the melody goes to especially on the guitars mm -hmm. that almost throws you off for a second but then once you listen through the full the full um uh part of the song like it all makes sense but it's really interesting you know what i'm talking about like uh, maybe maybe you don't know what i'm talking about but like mm -hmm. uh it's really early on in the record because it, it it's going to like this arpeggiated part and then it goes to like this this uh usually you can kind of feel where a song's going but it threw mm -hmm. me for a loop and I really like that. I love that. That's nice. one thing I love about Poison the Well. The melody's mm. never resolved. Like it goes to some weird spot and it keeps you like totally. on the edge of your seat and then it's the verse again. Or like it's, you know what I mean? I love that stuff. Um, and that's one thing I noticed in parts of this record was was like there's some uncomfortable parts, but in a good way. Like it's not like a mm. um a record you just take in easily and easily digest. Like there's some 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 uh, some challenging things on there which i liked i thought it was really interesting um cool because so much music now is so easily digestible like you just throw on like a pop punk record or you throw on, you know like you you're just gonna put it on and just ride it out there's not <laughs> a lot to really absorb and i feel like what you guys are doing now there's a lot more to absorb um and i appreciate that because that stuff uh really gets me going because i get sent these records all the time but this one i've been waiting on because i knew it was happening yeah. But I hadn't heard it till Steph sent it to me, and uh, yeah, it's awesome. Cool, it's very cool. Thanks. Um, but one thing, one thing I don't know. I mean, I don't know a lot about you because I mean, you were touring when I was touring heavy mm -hmm. in the early two thousands. We never played shows together. I don't think. 
And I don't think I ever got to see you guys live because we were always touring at the same time. So yeah. Armor for Sleep, you know, you guys came through Portland all the time, but mm-hmm. I was never here. Um, so where do you where do you come from? East Coast? Yeah. Um, we're all from New Jersey, born and raised in Jersey. Okay. Um, and uh, we all came up um, all going to shows together in Jersey when there was a crazy uh, infusion of bands coming out of, out of the state, you know, like when we were growing up um, it's when saves the day was really actually. So we, we all started going to shows. I started going to shows when I was 13 and um, you know, fat records and no effects. And that whole thing was really big, but ska punk and punk rock was huge in New Jersey at the time. Just I, I put on my first show when I was 13 years old. Oh shit. Um, so that's around the time when like hardcore started becoming a little bit more melodic. And I know the other guys in my band were all exposed to kind of how the scene was changing more in that direction around that time. So we were just really lucky that we grew up in a scene that was flourishing, um, with this amazing change in music happening. So we were kind of, you know, I know for me saves the day and Thursday, obviously, since I'm from New Jersey, those were, those were like monumental bands for me. Yeah. And, um, we were all playing in other bands, but when I started armor for sleep, when I was 17, I was just basically trying to do a, a hodgepodge of Thursday meet saves the day. I mean, if I'm being honest with myself, that's what it was. So like, that's, that's where we come from musically and geographically. And, um, you know, and then, uh, yeah, in the early two thousands, we started touring, but, um, I think it was like before the scene really like bubbled over into the mainstream and, um, you know, so, I mean, you were, you were there just playing, playing in front of like 10, 15 people a night. Like we did that whole thing for a long time. And, you know, that's kind of what we did when we were an active band. Yeah, dude, those, those, those nights were some of the best. Uh, yeah. when you're still hungry and still going, I mean, there's yeah, 10, 15 people there and you're playing your heart out to these people. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing is the, the, um, uh, the, the merchandise and stuff, like all the stuff, like that, that hoodie, the armor hoodie mm-hmm. is like, yeah. I think I'm trying to remember where I saw it. I was just talking to someone about this. Uh, maybe it was Finn McKenty's YouTube channel. But there was like a starter pack for like the early 2000s scene and it was an armor hoodie. Oh, no. <laughs> and then like, That's you know, awesome. the pants what and an stuff. Honor. But yeah, but it was everywhere. You know, yeah. I would see them everywhere. And uh, you could, I mean, it was, you could do something that simple, but it would take over. Like it would, and, yeah. and the, the scene was just flourishing. It was mm-hmm. crazy. But tell me, tell me about, you were 13 when you put on your first show. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, it was, I don't know. I was, I was just a, a different kind of kid. Like the, the first shows that I went to when I was like 12 at, at these Legion halls in New Jersey, just, it had such a profound impact on me and I wanted to be involved like so badly. So I, I just, uh, you know, I think, I think whereas my friends who went to shows with me were like, Oh, this is cool. Let's go to more shows. I was like, no, I want to do the shows. Honestly, I wanted to put on, um, shows so i could see the bands that i wanted to see you know like on the weekends so yeah my first show i just uh, called up a legion hall I, I put in all the legwork i rented the pa my mom was um was working the door she was collecting the money from everyone 
Um, and, you know, and this was before I was, you know, in a band, this is before I convinced my friends to play instruments with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think my love of like DIY and like doing stuff by myself to make things happen almost like predates my love of music, you know? So I think then once I did start playing music and once my friends and I got our band together, it was like, Oh, we already know how to print flyers. We already know how to make stickers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's kind of like what we got from the punk rock scene. Dude, that's incredible. The, the, the ingenuity for one at that age is it, in today's standards, crazy. Like you see yeah. a 13 year old putting out, do you know, Brian McTernan? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I actually, I, I, I know of him obviously, okay. but I'm not like friends with him. Well, he's, so. he's a, he's a good example. Like in, in battery when he was so young, like singing for this band and touring with this band, this hardcore band, like you wouldn't even see that nowadays. Like it, it's crazy mm-hmm. to me, but the fact that you were doing it more so, like you said, for like uh, being able to see the bands you wanted to see, like facilitating mm-hmm. that, you know, that that's the cool part. Versus, you know, like throwing shows like, well, we need a place to play. It's more like I want to see these bands and no one's booking them or things like that, you know, where you you want the choice. So yeah. you'll bring them yourself. Yeah. That's like I could not tell you to this day whether I lost or made money on those shows that I did. I have no idea. I just remember the bands that I saw and the experience that I got. Like money wasn't even money was just like a side note that I had to get through in order to make this experience happen. Mm-hmm. Um I think similarly to like how, you know, that's always how I approached music for me personally. I'm also probably not the best businessman in the world, but I've always been like, you know, most important thing is music. How can we get the music out there in the world? Like, I don't care about the money, like blah, blah, blah. We're like, you know, I know a lot of other people are like, well, if, if this is a single, it will stream more and, you know, it'll be worth more money. Like I've just never, that's just never been a priority for me, probably to my detriment, you know, but um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> to your detriment of your bank account, maybe, but not your yes. your overall well being and happiness. Mm-hmm. That's uh that's overwhelmingly important, and um, you know, just to have that that the the wherewithal to say, you know, I want to do things this way. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not taking this because of this. Uh, you know, just because the check's good, you know, um, yeah. is something you have to live with, regardless. Mm-hmm. So having that foresight that young too um is pretty impressive did you did you do a lot of things like that it's got me of course i I could say as a kid about 13 but you said like before like kind of predates uh music that diy ethic do you remember doing stuff before that like were you always that way just going to get it done yourself yeah yeah kind of um I, i this is one of my earliest like scholastic memories but in in fourth grade in my school there were like a few kids handpicked to like be uh, a part of this invention contest in new jersey and um and i was always really misbehaved in school like i I was uh like the class clown and getting in trouble but i my fourth grade teacher still picked me as one of the five kids to compete in this like statewide invention contest and i was like why did you choose me and they were like well you know we can tell you're creative or whatever and i so i went uh i invented this invention and i wound up like winning and going to the next level but i think that was the first time that i realized something about myself where i just i really i think i enjoy figuring out um like systems so i think that was the first time i was introduced to like this is a competition these are the rules these other kids are doing this how can i 
how can I figure out the system basically? And um, I think for me, putting on shows is the same thing. It's like, okay, this is the system that I really love. How can I, how can I dissect it um, and figure out how I can be a part of it? And same thing with music. I was like, I love songs. I love Chris Connolly and Jeff Rickley and uh, you know, all these guys, how can I reverse engineer songs? Can I do this myself? And then I spend, you know, I spent, you know, so long figuring out how can I write a song? What's, what are lyrics? What are chord progressions? You know, like I, I just, that's also probably to my detriment. I just always, I enjoy figuring out systems. So I think that's where that comes from. That's really interesting. The, do you remember like early, early on writing lyrics, like how you came up with those? Like I used to go through and I used to go rip off Pantera lyrics. Uh, mm -hmm. I would go through and like find lines I liked and then write them down like multiple spots on the paper and try to fill in between them and pass it off to my guys as my own. And that was when yeah. I was like 11 or 12 back in Alaska. So like we had Pantera and White Zombie and all these, you know, Ozzy. Uh, punk rock hadn't really made it up there yet. So they used to call them my hate anthems because they were so angry because they were Phil Anselmo's lyrics. Uh, but I would always try to pass them off as my own until I could figure out how to write my own. Did you... How did you first start writing lyrics? I'm curious. Oh my God. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, probably every young artist just starts ripping off, you know, before, before they find their own voice, they're ripping off other art. I mean, yeah, sure. that's just how it works. So yeah. I mean, my first band was called random task. I actually, I played drums, uh, in the band cause that's the instrument that I made my mom get me drum lessons. Uh, I, I made my mom, uh, you know, help me get drum lessons for drums. Cause I loved it so much, but my first band was just a blatant propaganda rip off blatant, like fat <laughs> yes. records rip off. And all we did was like listening back now, it's like comical, like how much our song sounded like no effects and, and everything. But I, I think that's just, you know, the natural process, you know, before, before you found your own voice to whatever that is, yeah, you're, you're copying other, other things and then stepping back and looking at it and being like, wow, yeah, that, that does probably sound a little bit too much like punk and drublick and like, what can we do? That's <laughs> a little different, but still familiar enough to satisfy us, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then, and then you get to a place where you're doing something original, but then five years past that you turn around and you're like, that wasn't really that original. You know what I mean? Like whatever oh, yeah. is truly original though, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then if something is completely, truly original, maybe it's just so far out there that it doesn't resonate with anyone or anything. So you're probably better off doing the thing that was more in line with, you know, stuff that's already been made. Yeah. I think I'm kind of somewhere in my life now. You get yeah. labeled as a band's band or uh, ahead of their time. That's my favorite is, they were ahead of their time, you know, and, and, uh, once a record doesn't hit quite hard enough, like you think it should. And then years later, yeah, you know, you've got what shape of punk to come by refused. You've got uh relationship of command by at the drive-in, like all these records are like, Oh, they're ahead of their time. Uh, and then mm -hmm. later they're massive, massive, like genre defining records. Um, I, I, that's such a it's such a um an interesting point there. You 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 were around so it saves the day Thursday. So it saves the day is interesting because that's when like they were touring with hardcore bands and like hardcore bands, yeah. hardcore dudes were showing their emotional side and like getting into. I mean, you've got like like Chad from Newfound Glory and like uh you know Chris from Saves the Day like touring with hardcore bands. That was a super interesting time because hardcore was was 
<clears throat> I guess you had hardcore like in the punk era, and you had hardcore in like the two thousands, late nineties, and it was just so brutal. And then this like melody started creeping in, and and you started seeing these guys like listen to these uh, melodic bands, and then you started getting the melody into hardcore, and it was just like this whole like morphing of genres but it was so interesting watching saves the day tour with so many hardcore bands back in the day and be embraced by that because they mm-hmm. were so blatantly just like melodic and poppy and and uh and fast so i guess yeah. people still gravitated towards it for the speed of it and stuff but you can't deny those melodies i mean chris is a genius uh, yeah you, uh, those i mean you sing them at the top of your lungs now mm-hmm. or then and then you feel exactly the same as you did uh the first time you heard it it's yeah. crazy it's absolutely crazy uh but you coming from that area like you got to see all sorts of rad shows so you know, me from alaska i saw nothing until we moved down in 2000 2001 and then started making up for lost time and saves the day was one of those bands saves the day yeah. goldfinger uh uh botch like bands like mm-hmm. that it was just this like what is this? There's all these things we hadn't heard of. We were listening to just like Weezer and Green Day and and uh, Blink-182 and stuff, you know, uh, back up there. But what an interesting time. Yeah. Absolutely interesting time. Um, so when you were, when you look back on on those times, when you're, I mean, you, you see how things are so, you think they're so original. Propaganda and No Effects are two very technical bands. <laughs> That uh, to be emulating at a young age is pretty staggering because if you look at like the the chord structures and like the the so many chords, no effects mm-hmm. is like thirteen chords in a verse, mm-hmm. and then Propagandi straight up just does whatever they want because they have no they have no theory, but they just shred. Like that's yeah. I mean those are two bands I would I would be stoked to hear someone imitating back then at that age. It's probably got yeah. no effects. Uh, uh, I don't know if you want to hear our our version <laughs> of it. <laughs> we'll have to put it we'll have to put it on here. <laughs> so you started with drums. Mm-hmm. When did you get into guitar? So um, all throughout high school, uh, my band Random Task would practice in my mom's basement um, every weekend, basically, uh, because I think the house that I grew up in in the basement it used to be a like a pirate radio station or some kind of like quasi recording studio. So it was like kind of soundproofed. So like, that's how my mom let me have a drum set in the basement, but like, it wasn't soundproofed at all. Like we, the neighbors constantly came and shut us down and my mom was constantly running down and being like, you guys have to stop. But um, anyway, so uh, all throughout high school, uh, my band would practice at my mom's house once a week and my guitar players would leave their guitars in the basement you know, so they wouldn't have to like schlep them back and forth. Mm. So I was just, um, a super, you know, super fan of music at that age. And I wanted to, I just wanted to, to play guitar. I think, um, the album that did it for me, I loved okay. Computer by Radiohead. Mm-hmm. And I started going online and getting the guitar tab for that. Cause guitar tab is like, you don't have to know how to read music. It basically says, put your finger on this fret on this string and it's like all like numbers. And so I, I just, I loved that album so much that I really wanted to play it. So I would sit down in my mom's basement and teach myself the guitar. And then, um, 
we we put out an album when we were like 16 years old and then when we were 17 uh for our senior year of high school our our school had like a, a senior internship program where you could you could go work at like a company or whatever and we we convinced our school that our company was our band so we did a little tour and then part of our internship program that we presented them was that we were going to record an album um but the thing is we didn't have enough songs to uh, to record a full length, but like, I really wanted to do this. So I basically started writing all the songs for us. So for that album, I think I wrote like 75% of the songs. And even though I was playing drums, I still wrote the guitars. I still wrote the lyrics and the melodies and everything. And we made that album. And then after senior year, we were all, uh, splitting up and going to different colleges. And I was like, you know what I would, since I can play guitar now and, since I can write songs, um, I want to play guitar and sing instead of sitting behind the drum set. So that's when I, uh, made a demo that I called armor for sleep. And, um, that's how it started. Wow. So you, do you just, you started singing at the same time you started playing guitar then or soon after, or were you singing before that? I knew you can be a I drummer mean, and quote, sing, unquote, but quote unquote singing. I mean, I did <laughs> I didn't view singing as like something I needed to practice. It was just like a means to like have a voice on the songs that I wrote. So like, for instance, I think the first demo that I did, my first true song demo, like literally the first time ever singing those songs was when I like stepped up to the mic and like recorded them in the studio. Like I was not a practiced vocalist by any means. Um, you know, it was just kind of a means to an end to get the songs recorded, which in retrospect is probably not the best way to like, you know, tackle singing. Sure. But it's also an, an interesting way to do it. Just throwing yourself mm -hmm. out there into it without, you know, really yeah. practicing it. I yeah. being the one, like there's a lot of, um, uh, stories where people say, you know, I, I was the only one that wanted to sing or I was the only one that could sing or carry a tune. So I mm -hmm. became the singer, never had any inkling to want to sing, but they're just like, okay, you can, you can hit this key. You can't, so you're the singer. It's interesting to stand up there and and just do that because uh, you've got a really good sense of melody. Like oh, that's what's. And, I mean, and that's the hardest part is mm -hmm. the melodies, right? Like that's why publishing and stuff pays out for differently for like the melody and then the. Uh, that's the hardest part, um, especially, you know, taking something that that. Uh, like taking a song with no words, no, no, no melody and, and turning it into that is definitely, it's a hard thing to do and to do well. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that, that it, so this was 17 when you did that, mm -hmm. or was it 16? Um, I was 16 when I wrote the songs, but when I went to record them, I was 17. Okay. But when you recorded the songs, you were singing on them, right? Like you were doing the singing then that's when you started putting words yeah. to it and, and melody. Sorry, my, my dog. Hold on one second. Okay. My dog is flipping out. Um, yeah. So the, that first, uh, the first demo that I did, I actually, the one advantage that I had is that I could play drums um, because I was playing drums in my band in high school. So I actually recorded all of the instruments um, for the first demo. So yeah, I, I played drums and then, you know, picked up the guitar, recorded the guitars and recorded the bass and then went and sang, sang the vocals too. Um, it was just yeah. me and the producer. Yeah. I love that stuff, man. Cause it's a total labor of love. Like it's all from you. Like it's all, it's all one complete picture. You know, mm -hmm. that's another thing that'd be challenging too, is, is policing yourself enough. You know what I mean? Where you, you could make, you know, 20 minute songs and go into the super indulgent stuff. 
uh, when it's just you and a, and a producer with no one to say, oh, hey, I don't really like that part or, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But to turn it into something very tangible is, is, is awesome. So that was the first, that was the first demo and it was called Armor for Sleep. But that yeah. was, was that the band name then or was that just the name of the, the demo? Yeah, I called it, I, I went to Staples. I, I called it Armor for Sleep. Um, and my band in high school, Random Task, we had a manager for our senior year who kind of sent out our album to a couple labels. And I think I had like two label contacts at the time. One of them was actually Victory Records. So I made this two song demo. I think I had two label contacts. One of them was Victory. One of them was in another label. It wasn't Equal Vision, actually. I forget who it was, maybe Drive Through. So I sent it out in the mail. And then like two days later, I got a call back from Victory Records, um, like one of the two labels that I sent it to. And they were like, hey, what's tell, tell me about your band. And they didn't know that there was no band, that it was just me and this. <laughs> so I was like, oh, crap, I need to get a band together. So that's when I started calling my friends and like trying to hobble together a band. Um, and then, yeah, and then basically Victory wanted to sign us and they they took a song from our next demo and we're like, Hey, can we, um, can we put one of these songs on, um, victory style five, which was, you know, like their free samplers that they put in hot topic and everything. Mm -hmm. And we were like, we were like, yeah, that would be awesome. That'd be great exposure. But like, we, we don't know if we're going to sign with you. Like we haven't signed a contract. And they were like, no, it's just like an act of good faith. And we were like, okay. So they put it on victory style five, which was actually like really good for us. Cause those, you know, circulated around very well at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they sent over the contract and, um, we had a lawyer look at it and it was just not, you know, it was not what we wanted to do and they were not happy about it, but that was, you know, kind of, I think how other labels heard about us, like I'm pretty sure equal vision heard of us, you know, because we were on that victory comp, mm-hmm. um, but not positive. Yeah. Well, it shows it shows that you have some some forward momentum getting put on. God, I, I, you, you probably remember getting those fat records compilations and survival, of the fattest and the punkorama mm-hmm. ones and stuff like that. Like, that's how you discovered new bands, especially if you're getting into a genre that you don't know anybody. There was no Spotify, so you can't just go give me something like this. It's like, where do I find bands that sound like this? Yeah, it was the genius marketing. Like, let's throw out a cheap comp sell a bunch of them but also then people are going to start buying these records like oh Frank, absolutely and over fist absolutely yeah victory style five i'm trying to remember the first one of those i got because it was random like i don't remember if it was in a mail order thing or what um but what year what year was that do you remember um it was probably oh two maybe okay two or oh three so we were already on the road that, yeah. It must have been on a tour somewhere. We got those because we we got a lot of those, um, mm-hmm. and we get demos all the time and stuff like that, and throw them in the in the uh, in the van and listen to them on those all night drives from yeah. people throwing out demos all the time. But uh, so then so then uh, so victory was a no go. The the contract was was not very not what you wanted to to see, um, and having a lawyer look over something like that is something uh, people that age don't you don't do. Usually, just mm-hmm. sign it and go to town, and then complain about it later. It's like, wait a minute, this mm-hmm. is a seventeen record deal, and and uh, you know, um, you know, and and I don't know. I've never been on Victory. I know they're notorious for some certain situations, but I've never, uh, uh, I don't know anyone from that label, and I've never been on that label, so I can't speak to that. But um, yep. So when Equal Vision got involved, um, 
how did that work out? I know you said you didn't, weren't sure if they heard from that comp, but but was it Dan that reached out or or who reached out to you guys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And funny little scene story. So when I was 13 years old, I put on, uh, like I said, the first show that I ever put on. And one of the reasons I did was because I wanted to see this band called Humble Beginnings play. I knew of Humble Beginnings because they, the singer of that band at the time uh, was this guy, Gabe, who went to my high school, but he was actually... When I started in high school, he had just graduated. So he was four years older than me, but I knew him because he was in this band. So anyway, he played that show when I was 13 and um, he just was, you know, I remember him being like, why are you 13 and doing the show? And I was like, I just love your band. So we, we kind of like had this weird friendship uh, since then. Anyway, flash forward a few years later and he had started Midtown and he was in Midtown mm. at the time. So when Equal Vision was interested in Armor for Sleep, Gabe was kind of on a hiatus from Midtown. And he was like, hey, can I step in and be your manager? Because um, I think some rough stuff had happened with Mid- with Midtown and labels. And Gabe kind of viewed me as a little brother and didn't want us to get screwed over. So he wanted to help be our manager. So when we were um, talking with equal vision, Gabe was just kind of like looking over all the paperwork and making sure everything was, um, was kosher. And, um, we were still figuring out our deal with equal vision and Gabe was like, you know what, we're still figuring out this contract. I think you guys should just go and make an album. So he knew this guy named Ariel who used to be the singer for this ska band called the hippos. He was like, he's never produced. Um, he's never really produced music before, but I think he could be a good producer. He's like, why don't you go to LA? You can sleep on my girlfriend's floor. Ariel will, will produce this first album. And then once it's done, we can, you know, if equal vision still wants to put it out, then cool. So we did, I flew out to LA, we did the record with Ariel and came back. And that was our, our first album, Dream to Make Believe, that uh, Equal Vision wound up putting out. Um, side note to that story is that now Ariel is like one of the biggest producers in the world. Uh, he's like done Usher and Madonna and just like the most massive things ever. And really? We were probably like the first real release he ever did. So, Dude, fun. I had that Hippos record. Like I it forget what the, I forget what the single was from it, but uh, that was the reason I bought it. I bought it at Fred Meyer in Alaska, mm-hmm. and I had that record. That was an awesome record. It was great. So he's yeah. working with Madonna and Usher. That's crazy. And then Gabe, you're talking Gabe Support. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. guessing uh, does Cobra Starship and and yep. just massive success with that. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. So he took you guys under his wing, and then and and now it seems also like fat records for example like you kind of have to have a record done before they sign you like they and then they'll put out the record and then they'll produce the second one it's right. kind of following that model the way yeah. you guys did it where you're like okay here's the record done put it out totally that's, you guys had the that's forward exactly momentum and everything that's that's the perfect way to do it to get the best yeah. deal and the and, and to have your vision uh, mm-hmm. realized because it's already yeah. done What's going on, guys? This is Dewey. I want to tell you about some new releases coming up from Equal Vision Records. As you guys know, Equal Vision Records is my family, and so are these bands. I really want you to check these out. We've got Hot Water Music with their 10th studio album, Vows, out May 10th, featuring guest appearances by Dallas Green of City and Color, Thrice, The Interrupters, and Brendan and Daniel from Turnstile. See them on the 30th anniversary tour with Quicksand in the States in May and June. 
and Europe in November. Hotwatermusic.com for more info. We also have Be Well with their new 7-inch, A Tap I Can't Turn Off, out now. First new music in two years from this band. This band is incredible, featuring members of Battery, Bane, Darkest Hour, and Fairweather. See them on tour with I Am The Avalanche in June. Equalvision.com for more info on that. And just your general information on Equalvision Records, you're always going to find something you like at Equalvision.com. Go there for vinyl and merch from all of your favorite bands. Check out Hot Water Music's new record and Be Well's new 7-inch now. What's going on, guys? This is Dewey from Pure Pleasure, and I want to tell you about our newest sponsor, DistroKid. DistroKid distributes your music across all online platforms. They are an amazing company. I've enjoyed working with them the last few weeks, and they're going to be with us for a while, and I really, really appreciate that. I love working with great companies, and DistroKid is one of them. Uh, they have an awesome thing they're doing right now called Splits. Now, if you're working as most people are online, doing collaborations with people from all over the country, all over the world, as easy as that is with the internet, uh, you want to get those people paid when you put that music online. And splits can do that. You can add an unlimited amount of collaborators to any track. You can change the splits at any time. You can add or remove collaborators at any time. You can see previous splits. And all your collaborators are going to have to do is sign up for a DistroKid membership, a DistroKid account, so they can get paid. And as always, DistroKid never takes a cut. You and your collaborators get 100% of the earnings in total. A couple other awesome things that they do is they set up an official artist YouTube channel. Uh, you can use Spotify Canvas, synced lyrics, promo card to promote your release on social media, a mini video for your socials as well. There's just so many awesome things about using DistroKid. And like I said, I don't advertise things I don't use, haven't signed up for. I have signed up for this. It is a breeze, literally a breeze. And you can get going right away. So definitely check out DistroKid. And I want to give you 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. That is distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for Peer Pleasure Podcast. Once again, that is 30% off your first year's DistroKid membership at any level. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP. Go check out DistroKid right now. distrokid.com slash VIP slash PPP for 30% off. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hey guys, this is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I wanted to tell you about Premium Pleasure, our premium subscription service that's available now. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. There's three tiers, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Tier one is $5 a month. It gets you the ad-free experience. Tier two gets you access to the Peer Pleasure Passcast. It gets you access to the videos of the interviews. It gets you merch discounts. Tier three is $20 a month. 
that gets you all of that. It gets you the past cast, gets you the video footage, discounts on merchandise, and monthly Zoom calls well, with myself and other guests. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in there for you. There's all kinds of stuff in there for you now. There is, uh, I believe, 30 to 40 videos of these interviews. There is uh, multiple episodes of the past cast. The past cast is a podcast that I'd started separately that is me and another podcaster or me and a guest uh, discussing a deep dive into their favorite episode of Peer Pleasure. Um, so there's a bunch of those on there. So so-and-so and I would talk about the Chino Moreno episode. So-and-so and I would talk about uh, the Yvette Young episodes. And we would do a deep dive and tell where they came from, how we got the guest, stories of uh, that weren't discussed on the podcast or maybe weren't in there. Um, it's just another glimpse behind the curtain. So that's the big deal with this premium service is giving you a glimpse behind the curtain of how the podcast is made, gives you access to things I'm doing and things that we're doing with the show, um, gives you, you know, ad free stuff. It gives you just all kinds of, of things that we could throw in there to help make it a valuable part of your month. Cause I put everything out there on this show. I put everything I have into this show. Um, so being able to give you guys that little bit of extra is a big deal to me and having your support is a big deal to me because if we don't support our artists and creatives, we're not going to have any left. So I appreciate it. Peerpleasure.supportingcast.fm is the website. Go sign up today and get some of this premium pleasure. So did I you, it was cool. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Did you record all the, the instruments on that record or did you have the band together at that point? So we had a, so Anthony is our, was our bass player then he's still our bass player now, but mm -hmm. we had two different guys who were playing guitar and drums at the time. Um, okay. They went out to LA with us and Ariel at the time was like, these guys are not ready to play on the record. Mm -hmm. So we sent them home and they actually would not be in the band after that. Um, so we had a, we had a session drummer come in and play drums and I played the guitar and Anthony played his bass parts. And then we got home and um, my friends Nash and PJ, who were in an Equal Vision band called Prevent Falls, um, joined the band um, because Gabe asked if we wanted to open up for Midtown um, on some tour dates that they were playing with a new band called Taking Back Sunday, who we had met in, um, in New York. So we were like, yeah, we'll do that. So that's how we got the guys in the band together. Um, and yeah, that's how that happened. That's wild, man. I So did, how long did Gabe manage you for then? So Gabe managed us pretty much through that dream to make believe cycle. And okay. then what happened is he wasn't too stoked on being a manager at that point. And I think honestly, like, and if he wants to, you know, I don't want to step on his toes, but I think part of like managing us, like reinvigorated his desire to like do cool stuff in a band again. So he decided to, start up midtown again um and so midtown got a new management company called crush and gabe was mm -hmm. like listen i, I don't want to manage you guys anymore because i am doing midtown but i don't want to leave you guys stranded so um would you be cool with crush managing you guys um and as midtown does their thing and so basically he had us come in and we had a meeting with crush and at that point crush was a, a nobody management company um, the only one thing they had was like, we're, we started managing these kids from Chicago called fallout boy. And we knew fall boy. We were like, we were like, Oh, you mean the band that spins around on stage? And, 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 uh, and crush was like, no, we really think they're going to do something. And I was like, all right, well, if they have so much faith in this, you know, 
this like silly pop punk band from Chicago and they're going to stand by them. I was like, that's pretty cool. So like, yeah, you can, you can manage us. And that's how we, we went to crush. And that was kind of like the next step of, of our band. That's dude. When you said crush, I wasn't thinking crush back then. I'm thinking the crush does green day and, no, and exactly. yeah. now <laughs> and they're in Weezer yeah. and fallout boy, as yep. you just mentioned, and just one of the biggest mm. management companies in the world. Uh, yeah. Crazy crazy yeah so yeah. okay so and then so at this point you put out the next record uh when did when did things really start to pick up was it on that record the second record <laughs> yeah so the first record gabe as our manager was like you guys are going to be the next big thing in the scene mm-hmm. And like I said, we were friends with bands like Taking Back Sunday too, who who heard Dream to Make Believe and were like, oh my God, this is going to blow up. And we were like, no, your record is going to blow up. And they were like, no, you're going to blow up. And what happened is Taking Back Sunday got massive, like yes, immediately did. massive. And, um, you know, there were a couple other bands that were like kind of our peers at the time that just blew up and it didn't, it didn't happen for us on that record. And I just remember you know, feeling kind of like defeated and, and, uh, like it was fine. We, you know, we had some fans, but we didn't blow up. Like, like we saw taking Max Sunday blow up. So we kind of had our heads down. Um, it was kind of a weird time because I feel like maybe we were pawned off onto crush, you know, crush had panic at the disco and fall Out boy. And like, I feel like maybe this was in my head, but I feel like it just kind of seemed like Gabe handed us off to them. Like we weren't really a priority. I didn't know if equal vision felt let down that dream to make believe wasn't big. So we just kind of like wrote a second record and I didn't think anyone was paying attention. And I think that kind of gave me the Liberty to be a little bit weird just cause I was like, fuck it. Like we're not going to be big. No one gives a shit. So I'll just, uh, let me, let me write an album about a guy being dead the whole time. Like it's going to be a weird story. I don't care if no one gets it. So I wrote a concept album called what to do when you're dead. That mm-hmm. starts with uh, on the first song, a guy driving his car into a lake. And then for the rest of the album, he's this ghost in purgatory. And uh, <laughs> I don't mean to, uh, to piss off Gabe, but I do remember when we, when uh, you know, when we finished recording it, I played it for Gabe and Gabe was like, this is a good record, but I think dream to make believe was better. Like, uh, you know, the dream to make believe should have been your second record. And, and I was like, whatever. So once that album came out, equal vision, they heard it and they really decided to stand behind it. And, um, Tom Mullen was working at the, at the label at the time. And he really like championed the label, uh, the, the record at MTV two and fuse and, just, I feel like in all these places that equal vision was not used to, um, pushing their music. So we got airplay on MTV. Um, and we were on Steven's untitled rock show on fuse. And, and, um, so yeah, the summer after that came out, I think, you know, we really started to feel like, wow, like people actually are like coming out to our shows and singing along. And, um, you know, that was a, that was a change for us for sure. Man, that's what it was just seeing things kicking off like crazy. Then all that stuff, like what I said with the merch and stuff too, like seeing it everywhere. Like mm-hmm. that's great. So I remember Fuse, man. That was like the the that was like the Canadian MTV. Uh, yeah, right. Like that. Yeah, or, or was it Much Music? Much Music was was Fuse Canadian. Yeah, you're right. Much okay. Music was the Canadian one. Fuse was based in uh, in New York. Yeah, okay. I think they had like a Times Square studio. So it's like there's MTV2, MTV. But it seemed like that. the Canadian MTV. Yeah. yeah. Steven's Untitled Rock Show. I remember that. Uh, the Daily Habit. 
uh another show on there that where bands would play live um that's wild dude so then so then that's like it's funny gabe said that because uh that guy that guy seems to have his finger on the pulse of things like really be up on things and really have a good thing but you know everyone makes mistakes no he he was just so invested in dream to make believe and i think he maybe felt a little bit guilty that it didn't pop off in the way you know he had wanted it to um gabe if you're listening you know i i don't i don't I don't think you said that to, to, you know, um, to be mean or whatever. I just think, you know, he just had so much, so many hopes for a dream to make believe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So this, so, and one thing I always do noticed about you guys is you guys had amazing tours you were on. Like you guys were on some amazing tour packages and that's where I would always see the name aside from the merch is, is, uh, on, on tour flyers. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm, I'm trying to think, um, if you guys played, there's a club called Loveland. It was was called Loveland in Portland, um, where I did production management for a while in between tours. And I want to say you guys played there one of the times, but I think I was working the parking lot and wasn't able to watch the show. But I remember seeing the name, just the name repetition over and over and over again um, when things just started to like catapulting, right? Like going huge. And then do you guys put out another record before before the hiatus, right? Yeah. So, How long after that was that record? Um, it was uh, it was far too long. It was it was a couple years, maybe two okay. and a half years or something. I'll have to look at the dates. But we, you know, uh, I'm not going to blame it on Crush or anything. But I think the general, the way the scene was going, and the way that all of these bands were getting big, there were so there were major labels just lurking over all of these bands like Vultures, you know, just. You know, it was, it was just the common, uh, the common thought that like you get big in the indie scene, but like emo was blowing up so much that like the next step was just to like, take your chances at a major label. And, and we, we got swept up in that. So we, um, so Warner brothers came to us and, and, uh, you know, asked if we wanted to sign with them and equal vision wanted to do the third record with us but at the time you know we were i i just you know we were just all young guys we just yeah. wanted to go for like what we thought was like the next biggest move for us um and you know ultimately it was a mistake you know i i, I just think it's a lot of people have these like um these tropes about like when you sign to a major label uh you know that's when everything gets fucked up, but they don't understand that that usually happens because when you go to a major label, most of the time, the major label doesn't understand the things that made you special in the same way that like your home base label knows. So like when we went to Warner brothers, I feel like they were so hands off with everything and we're like, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. And like, you'll continue on this path. And, and, um, you know, we just, we didn't have that, um, that, support behind us and also uh i think you know again not to pin this on anyone else but i think our management company too were like uh, again they just wanted to make money and see us succeed i think they were really second guessing every song that we had like the first demos that we made we, we demoed out 12 songs for the third record and i was like this is it. These are the songs like done. We handed them them into our management company. I was like, all right, let's start booking a producer and figuring out 
what to do it, uh, when to do the record. And I remember basically them call me back and be like, um, you got to write more songs. And I was like, what do you mean? Literally up until this point, the way we have functioned is like, you know, we write the songs and we're like, this is the record we want to do. This is, you know, what we want to put out. And up until that point, it's been like, okay, like equal vision was always supportive. Like we, we trust you go and make that record. And, um, and that was the first time that, that someone was like, no, we want you to keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. So we went through that process for so long. And I feel like we were just trying to like impress them at a certain point until they would like basically green light us to go make an album. And like in retrospect, you know, I wish I had been more of an asshole. I'd wish I'd been like, guys, like I, I, everyone has the best of intentions and they want us to succeed, but I just don't think they knew our band as well as we did. Mm -hmm. Um, and as kids, you know, we, we put our faith in, in them and, and again, not blaming them. I think, you know, um, I, I can take the blame too, for not, uh, being more assertive in what, uh, you know, in what I thought was the right thing for us, but also like, I was never the most assertive person to begin with, you know? Um, so yeah, it was just a strange time. So we did an album on Warner brothers and it basically just didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do quote unquote by their standards. And then, um, we did a tour with Lincoln park. We were playing to 30,000 people a night. And I just remember in that moment, yeah, it was crazy. And I remember in that moment being like, I don't even, you know what? I, I do remember on that tour actually seeing 30,000 people a night, but looking out and just seeing a bunch of angry white dudes in every city across the country and just being like, I guess I didn't know how many angry white dudes were across the country. And I was like, if this is my future in a rock band, like if this is the peak of like how big you can get playing rock music like in America, I was like, it was just kind of bumming me out. So that's when we announced our hiatus and kind of went away. Um, and I, you know, obviously this was pre Trump, but that's why the whole Trump thing didn't really surprise me. Cause I was like, you know what? I remember those crowds from the Lincoln park tour. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Random political side note, but no, that's, that's, it's an interesting take to notice that and, and to take that away from it because man, I wonder, I wonder, I've not had any of those guys on the show, but I wonder what their thoughts were going out and seeing that every night of their career is seeing that in, in their audience. Like that's who they're connecting to. Right. Like, yeah, that's interesting. To and me. listen, I, I don't mean, I don't mean to pass judgment and, and just say everyone was angry. I don't mean to say that. I know that sounds pretty snarky, um, but for sure there was a, even I love Lincoln park and I think what they've done is amazing. Um, and, you know, but yeah, I did see some fans that just uh, did not even like appreciate that and would just go to shows just to like start fights. And, you know, I guess, I guess I'm talking about those specific people. I don't, oh, I don't mean to. Everyone uh, knows who you're talking Lincoln about. Park fans. Everyone yeah, yeah, knows okay. who they're at every show. There's only a couple yeah. of them at most shows, but when it's sure, the sure. whole like front area pit area is that right? Like it can be staggering to see. And um, so in the, the thing you were saying too about the the major label stuff like it's it's funny because they they will it seems like they'll sign a band and then figure out why everyone likes them like they don't know why sure. everyone likes them they're just like hey a lot of people like these guys get them in here then they play catch up and there's too late at that point like they don't understand why people like you and that's something like evr would would understand why people like it's the same reason they liked you right like and uh so 
that, that's that that whole uh and not anything against major labels either like it's just that's just how they work like it's said totally we, i mean we all have friends that work for major labels now and, and don't think any less of them because they work for a major label but at the same time like the the model of it is so difficult to to keep um like a homegrown feel to anything it just doesn't happen yeah. and your whole crew gets fired a year later and then no one knows who you are but you're still under contract like it's it's crazy um yeah the amount of turnover in that industry especially over the last 10 years um so you guys announced the hiatus bow out what do you do in the meantime what what were you doing in those years before coming back so we did some like reunion type shows um but i think after that we just um we just did our lives you know i think uh I think we did a lot of, uh, growing up personally, you know, like for me, I was touring from when I was 17 years old to when I was 27, basically. Um, so I, uh, I moved to New York city. I got in a long-term relationship and, um, still did, uh, you know, really creative things, uh, that made me fulfilled. Um, actually one of the things I did, uh, crush asked me at a certain point to come in and be an, a manager for some of their upcoming, um, acts basically, uh, cause they, you know, they, they knew that some of the artists they were trying to break needed maybe like a creative push or, you know, they just knew that I had been there before. So, um, that was a cool thing that I did for a number of years was like help them with some of their emerging talent. Um, I moved to LA in 2016 and again, we played some reunion type stuff musically. I did, um, other stuff out here more in like the kind of like movie screenwriting kind of world. And, uh, you know, and then, and then we wanted to do the 15 year anniversary tour for what to do when you were dead, because like those, the fans of that record never really, uh, went away, you know, and, mm -hmm. and Dan from equal vision was like, you know, I think if you guys wanted to do a 15 year tour, those fans would appreciate it. And I was like, Dan, I was like, I'm too in the fishbowl because I'm me. So I, I don't, I can't tell all that stuff, but I was like, I trust you if you think we should do it. So that's when we kind of like planned that whole like comeback tour. Man, there's no one in this world. I trust, like I trust Dan Sanchez. I say it all the time. But yeah. there's not there's very few people I trust at that level that I do with Dan. And uh I'm glad you listened to him because people lost their minds for that tour. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. So how did you feel being were you like just a day-to-day -day manager or were you actually full on managing some of these emerging artists with Crush? So um yeah, it was it was no. Basically, uh, to be, I mean, they're, they're two heads of the company and ultimately they're the ones calling the shots. Mm -hmm. So there are a bunch, there are actually only a handful of managers there, but you're basically like a day-to-day -day manager. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately it's, it's a job where you have a boss and, um, you know, honestly, I was hoping it would be a little bit more um, creatively, like, you know, what can I contribute based on what I learned creatively to help this artist? Mm -hmm. Um, but I understand that they are very successful at doing what they do because they have, you know, their vision for things. And, um, 
ultimately that's what it was. And I, I don't know if that's exactly what I uh, thought it was going to be beforehand, but like more power to them. Like, obviously they're like the biggest management company in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, nothing against them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell me, so, so coming back, coming back with this new record, tell me about this new record. Tell me about, you know, how it started coming back to you, you know, uh, kind of walk me through that. Cause it's, it's really good. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. So we were planning this 15 year reunion, uh, tour and then it got shut down because of COVID. So summer of 2020, I was like, you know what, after what to do when you were dead, before we signed with Warner, I wanted to do, because what to do when you're dead was this concept album. I, I realized that really resonated with our fans. Um, at the time I had an idea for an album based on a short story that I did a few years earlier. That was like taking the concept album to like the nth degree. Like I wanted there to be a book accompanying it and all of this, all this stuff. And when we signed to a major label, um, the people around me at the time were like, no, we can't do that concept album. Now it's too complicated. You're on a major label, do a simple record. Mm. And I was like, shit. And then we disbanded and I never got to, I ne- that record never, you know, got to see the light of day. So summer of 2020, when we're all in lockdown, I was like, you know what, this may be the chance for me to finally like revisit that idea for this album. Um, the idea for it was called the rain museum. Mm -hmm. It was based on a short story that I, I wrote. Um, and the premise of the short story is there's this, uh, it it takes place in a post-apocalyptic earth, uh, where there's no more weather. And in the middle of the desert, there's this mysterious museum and, uh, like stragglers from all around the world come back to this museum because it has relics from earth's past and all these people get drawn to it. Um, so I wanted to like revisit that idea and make this crazy complex concept album about it. Uh, so that's what I set out to do. Unfortunately, around that time, my marriage of eight years completely fell apart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really, I mean, uh, that's tough no matter when it happens, but it was very unfortunate timing in that the world had completely shut down. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, I couldn't do the standard thing of like going over to a friend's house or like going to a bar to get a drink. You know, it was like the worst possible time to be going through the worst possible thing that I've ever been through in my entire life. The only thing that I had going for me was that I had this record that I set out to like finish. It was like, you know, like people like did jigsaw puzzles in the pandemic or whatever Mm -hmm. made quilts. Like my thing was like, I'm going to finish this record. Um, but I was fighting this insane thing that was going on in my life. So as I, as I was piecing together this story, basically in writing the album, um, I just, I couldn't escape the fact that I was like, why I started basically writing what I was going through and this like hell that was in my head, basically like over the story that I originally like set out to do. So basically I was like building this world in my head and these musical ideas, trying to write this album based on it. But then also like literally my only friend that I could talk to was like this writing process of doing this album. So like these two things were going on at once. And like, I even got to a point where I was like, do I, do I split these two things apart? But then, you know, it just kind of made sense to me that, 
you know, the record was going to be this combination of these two things. And then it just like made sense to me that that's what I needed to make. And that, that was really the thing that I wanted to kind of like bring to life all of these years. Like it wasn't just some like random story it needed to have this like emotional heft. And like, unfortunately I had this like real thing to like give it that. So yeah. So that's the story of the album and that's what it is. Dude. I am. Well, you know, I'm sorry to, to hear you went through that awful, Thanks, awful man. time. You know, I know, uh, and being in lockdown like that and having nowhere to go, I could, I would, these are things I would think about during that time, like with what people were going through, like, you know, stuck with somebody stuck with, you know, someone they were either going through what you're going through, stuck with someone abusive, stuck with someone they're terrified of, you know, like things where people just kind of just stuck. And what was going to come out of that situation. And and that's really fascinating that that happened when it did yeah. uh, to, to put the finishing touches on something that you've been sitting on or the, at least the idea of for so long to then, mm-hmm. you know, even before it sounds like timing wise before that marriage even happened was an idea yeah. you wanted yeah. to do. You mm-hmm. got into this thing. Once the band dissolved, go through this relationship, ups and downs then the end and the end is the beginning of this new chapter at the same time that's tying together years earlier in your life is fascinating that puts a whole new spin on this record for me uh yeah totally i'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again now after (laughs) because i want to listen to it with that in my mind because uh that's a really interesting premise an unfortunate premise but a very interesting premise and the fact that it is yeah. completed and it came out so well, I mean, the songs are solid, man. Like I, I really like this record and, and, uh, um, I'm still for people to hear it because it's, it's going to be a whole, a whole nother chapter in your story. Thanks, man. Which is awesome. Thank you. Um, and then do you guys plan on doing some touring, a good amount of touring off this record? Just like the old days yeah, heading so, out for, uh, I don't, I mean, it's definitely like a new chapter in the band. Like we're, we're, we're um, supporting uh, Dashboard Confessional and Andrew McMahon are doing a co-headlining tour this summer. Okay. So we're going to be supporting like the Midwest and East Coast leg. And then we're playing the When We Were Young Festival craziness Dude. in October, which is going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's going to be I still absurd. don't know how that's going to work. I still don't. I know. I, I, I see it. I see it. Is it real? Is it real? Dude, come You're on. Have that many bands. It. Three and a half minute sets. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Anthony Green and I were talking about this the other day. And he's like, if you changed up the, if you changed up the order every show, then people could see all the bands they wanted to see. Otherwise, if it's the same lineup or the same time slots, you're going to miss the same bands you missed before. Uh, But then, yeah, I guess everyone's got some multiple. I think what's going to be really cool, cooler than the festival even is the one-off shows that happen that week in between where so-and-so is playing with so-and-so and you're like, what the hell? Like they, they, they yeah. get in Europe in festival season where, Oh, so like Lamb of God's playing with saves the day at, at this club and wherever, like, you yeah. know, like the weird one-off days, uh, I think it would be really interesting. How do you feel about that festival? I, I think it's gonna be awesome, but I, I know everyone's saying, Oh, is it real? Is it not real? Is it like, this is like, they thought it was a joke. They're like, no, it's happening. Tickets are sold. I'm really yeah. interested to see what happens. It's very interesting. I'm excited for it. Um, 
it opened my eyes to how uh, internet conspiracies can uh, perpetuate. Like, mm-hmm. I think on day one, everyone was like excited about it. Day two is when fans really started losing their minds. And um, I had people, fans online, asking me how much Live Nation were paying me to uh, promote this fake festival. Oh, and I was man. like, I was like, dude, they're not paying me to promote it. I was like, my band is playing. So I'm telling you about it because I want you to come and see my band play. <laughs> like, that's the only <laughs> conspiracy here. <laughs> like, um, and yeah, and, and it, it was just, it was craziness. I, I was texting like my friends and other bands. I was like, are you getting just like the craziest shit online? Um, you know, it just made me realize how, how easy conspiracies can just spread when, when people, when something so unbelievable happens that people just can't wrap their heads around it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, dude, it's some it's, uh, it's for the history books, man. This festival is the amount of bands they yeah. got to do this on these dates. Like, I mean, it's wild, absolutely wild. And with yeah. no warp tour being left and, uh, you know, there's just this, this gaping hole in, in festivals in the United States for, for, you know, this whole genre. Like, it's just like, without that, this is like the culmination of what happens when you pull something like that away, it's going to strike yeah. again and it's going to be even bigger. That's exactly what they did. Is it live nation? Yeah. yeah. It is live nation. Okay, man, that's going to be super interesting. I'm going to have to get down there to that thing, man. I, I've. I put it off because I was like, I was same thing. I was like, I don't know how logistic is this going to get canceled. Like, I don't know how logistically they're going to do this. And then, uh, yeah, you know, it just became more real. The more people I talked to, they're doing it. Like, no, we're playing 100. percent Like, like, yeah. well, I believe you. I just uh, as it gets closer, <laughs> I know everyone's worried is it going to get canceled because of COVID. Is it going to do this, this, and this? But uh, I think it's just going to be a glorious, a glorious event like Furnace Fest was, right? Like, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be cool. Um, yeah. Well, man. Well, well this has been awesome dude i appreciate you coming on and and uh, the new record's great and i, I think people are really gonna enjoy it congratulations it got announced today um nice to be and you're just doing some awesome stuff man i'm so glad you're still going and and doing this um you know it, it's really important and and you know i'm sorry what you went through to get to this point um but coming out on the end of it with something great like this is, is you couldn't ask for anything more man yeah um yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I, you know, me, the rest of the dudes in the band really care about anything else aside from like putting something cool out into the world. You know, like mm-hmm. it's it's a different thing being in a band in your 30s than it was when we were like 20, you know, and where we wanted to be on TRL. Like we really just don't give a fuck about anything aside from like putting out a piece of art that could possibly speak to someone at some point in time like literally that's my barometer for success so yeah it's the right way to be man it's the right way to be you'll always be happy man it's 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 uh uh, that's so great i i really appreciate the time man and uh yeah congratulations on everything welcome back to the family and and uh yeah we'll talk soon man yeah man all right this is great thank you for having me on you betcha have a good night we'll see you all right, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ben Jorgensen from Armor for Sleep. Again, their new record, The Rain Museum, is out September 9th. Uh, I have heard the record. It's fantastic. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Hopefully, uh, that gave that conversation gave some insight into the record. Uh, I got to listen to the record first and then have the conversation, which I went back and listened to it again. Uh, and it has a whole new meaning, finding out all that stuff about Ben and his story. Uh, so I hope... 
uh, all is well with him and, and cheers to him for coming on. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this new record. So pick it up definitely September 9th. And that is called the rain museum. And that'll be on equal vision records. They're back with the family and we're glad to have them back. And speaking of family, I'm glad you guys come back week after week. I really feel a family atmosphere with this show. Uh, even as it's growing, uh, consistent people writing in, um, consistent people rating and reviewing the show, telling friends about it, giving guest suggestions. I just really, really appreciate having you guys on board. So thank you so much for that. I love each and every one of you. Please do something nice for someone else this week. Um, weather's been crazy hot over here in Portland. Everyone's stressed out. Everyone's tired. It's just <laughs> really taking it out of this town. I tell you what, it's, it, being downtown uh, and working in downtown uh, on these big buildings, you just see a lot of, of different stuff and, and people are struggling right now. So any nice thing you can do for someone else will go a long way. And if you're listening on Spotify, please rate the show. And if you're listening on Apple, go review the show. We got a couple really awesome reviews this week. And uh, I'm going to start sharing those on the show, but I really appreciate those. Um, it really helps people to get an idea of what the show's about that haven't heard it um, and helps with the algorithm. It helps on all kinds of things. So uh, I'm going to get out of here, guys. Thank you so much for coming back week after week. I know I say it all the time, uh, but I really do mean it. The show is growing and it's really, really awesome. So uh, definitely check out the new Armor for Sleep record when it comes out on September 9th. Uh, shoot me an email, whatever you want to do, rate, review the show. And as always, we'll see you on the radio. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. 
Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.